Good morning. If you want to turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, starting a new summer series this morning in the book of Ruth. It's the eighth book in the Bible, if you're trying to find it. Fun fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually the ninth from the last book. The ordering is different. Uh, before I get started, I have a couple stories I want to share about my relationship with the book of Ruth. First, when I was in seminary in Hebrew class, we had to, ch uh, to translate chapter 1 of Ruth, which is 23 verses, and for each verse, we had to translate it clause by clause, grammatically. We had to give grammatical notes, talk about the verbs, talk about the context, compare it to four other translations, like three or four other steps, and then we had to retranslate it at the end and explain any changes we made. It took forever. My notes on chapter one for Ruth were 99 pages when I turned them in. And I got a D plus. And I was never somebody who was obsessed with grades, but I was sickened by that. Um, uh, second, I have a, whenever I think of the book of Ruth, for me, I think of, I have a great Aunt Ruth who passed away in 2020. She was my Grandpa Benner's older sister, and um, she dedicated her whole life to ministry and serving people. She worked for the Salvation Army for over 45 years. And I know nobody's perfect, we, we are all sinful, but of all the people I've ever known in my life, she was more than anyone else, a person I looked at and never saw anything wrong in her. Uh, and yeah, she was just a really impactful person in my life. Whenever I would talk to her, she lived in New York, whenever I talked to her on the phone as a kid, she'd always say, I love you and I'm praying for you. And uh, I feel like she really exemplified a lot of the virtues of the biblical Ruth. Uh, and fun fact, if Robbie had been a girl, Robbie would have been Ruthie. Uh, Ruth, we're just looking at the first five verses today, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for the many blessings that we have and for your goodness and grace in our lives. We thank you that we have this time together, Lord, to celebrate your great name, to worship you, and may we do that in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for Bruce, that he's on the mend and recovering, and just want to continue to pray, Lord, day by day, getting better, feeling better. Lord, we continue to also pray for Ron Nurgler, Mary Merkel, as they both continue to recuperate and recover. Lord, we want to pray for rain. It's something that we need desperately in this area. And Lord, we want to trust you for that and pray that you would provide rain. And we also pray for this new series in Ruth, Lord, this wonderful book from your holy word. We pray that we'd be pointed to the gospel, pointed to the truth, and be edified in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy lawyer and real estate investor in Chicago. 
Things were looking good until they weren't. His only son had died from scarlet fever. Then, in October of 1871, the infamous Great Chicago Fire struck the city. Hundreds died, and over 17,000 structures were destroyed. It was a crushing financial blow for Horatio. More on him later. As I said a few moments ago, beginning a series in the book of Ruth this morning, one of the most beloved books in the Old Testament. It's a masterful piece of narrative storytelling. Some of the main themes of Ruth include God's sovereign provision and his covenant loyalty to his people. We also see Ruth as an example of virtuous living. Today, we're only looking at these first five verses. In this passage, we're introduced to a woman named Naomi, and we see life deal her one devastating blow after another. The main idea from the passage today is to walk with God in a world that walks away from him. And we'll look at this passage today in three scenes. Leaving the promised land, two marriages, and three widows. First scene, leaving the promised land, verse 1 on your screen. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so this first verse introduces us to the time frame of when these events happen. It tells us the situation, and it introduces us to four characters, although all of them are so far unnamed. I'll start with the time frame. The period of the judges places the book of Ruth after the death of Joshua, but before the formation of the monarchy. It was not a good time in Israel's history. They were in the promised land, but it was also a time of rampant sin. In the book of Judges, you see a succession of generally worsening leaders in Israel with this common refrain we see throughout that book that says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so this is the same era where the events in Ruth are occurring. What's more, the text tells us that there was a severe famine Famine in the Old Testament is often associated with divine judgment. While we cannot know with certainty that this is the reason in the book of Ruth, given the timing and the situation, I think it makes sense here. And this is something that we'll see really throughout this five-verse passage. These first few verses, if you just pick up your Bible, at first glance can appear to be very matter-of-fact, but I think there's some very subtle clues that the family has actually been rebellious towards God. And so in this first verse, you see a very difficult decision that the husband, later identified as Elimelech, makes. The family is facing famine and drought, and so they leave the promised land for Moab, a pagan land. This first verse mentions them being from Bethlehem. Now, for Christians, that town is most significant to us because that's the place where Jesus was born, and it was also the future hometown of King David. But at this point in Israel's history, Bethlehem is a fairly insignificant place. Nothing major has happened there yet. And that's probably part of the reason that in verse 1 it says Bethlehem in Judah, because there was actually more than one city called Bethlehem, and so they need to specify because it's so relatively insignificant. 
Also, in an interesting twist of irony, the word Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. Years earlier, the Israelites had entered the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. But now, in this famine, they leave the house of bread because the breadbasket has gone empty. They leave the promised land. I tried to think about this this week, and I even asked a friend of mine who's a lot smarter than me. He has a PhD in Old Testament, and he couldn't think of any examples either. But I believe that this opening sequence is the only place in the Old Testament where you have people willingly leave the promised land to live somewhere else. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I think in the book of Ruth, Elimelech was guilty of that as well. Now in our day, people move. Many young adults who have grown up in Sista Park have moved to larger cities. In our day and age, sometimes people move for newer opportunities or different opportunities. During the Dust Bowl, a terrible period in America's history, people moved from the Great Plains, places like Kansas and Oklahoma, to other parts of the country, trying to find a better life. The pilgrims came to America for freedom of their religion, to have a better life. Over the last 150 years, millions of people have come to America from all over the world, seeking out a better life. There's nothing wrong with moving. But the situation with Elimelech and his family is unique because their move has them leaving the promised land. And that is a problem. Things were difficult where they were, but they weren't going to be better outside the promised land because things will never be better apart from God. And so leaving Israel was an act of distrust. For us, when we're going through a season of drought, when we're going through a dark night of the soul, the temptation can so often be to distance ourselves from God, to distrust God, to question God and his goodness and love. For Elimelech and his family, they distance themselves from the land. We do not have a literal land to leave, a literal promised land, but we can still so easily turn away from God's blessings. We can so easily turn away from God when things are difficult in pursuit of worldliness. God invites us to know him, but when we're angry with God, there can be a temptation to turn away from him. God invites us to trust in him, but when things are difficult, the temptation can be to want to trust in ourselves. God invites us to follow him, but when we're hurting, the temptation can be to want to follow the world, to follow the various idols and contemporary philosophies of the day. God invites us to live for him, but there can be a temptation to try to make our own way, do our own thing. And that's what we see from Elimelech when he leads his family out of the promised land in a difficult time. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So verse 1 is really revolving around the circumstances. Now they finally give the names of the characters. This verse ends by saying that they went to Moab and remained there. 
which leads to various questions. For how long? Was it meant to be temporary, or was Moab going to be their long-term home? The writer doesn't give us all the information we want. In verse 3, we see their whole world turned upside down. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Once again, there's more questions than answers. How did he die? Why did he die? Was it divine judgment for leaving the promised land? Seems plausible, but the text doesn't tell us that for sure. All we know is the result. Elimelech is dead. And with that, we come to our second scene, and we see two marriages. Verse 3 quickly mentions the death of Elimelech. Verse 4 just as quickly moves on. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. When their father died, Naomi and her sons had decided not to return to Israel. We don't know why. But eventually, the two sons marry. Now, in the verse, it says, These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. We actually don't even know from the text which son marries which woman. It's interesting, in the passage, it says that they took wives. And the word in Hebrew, which is used, is unusual in this instance. Because it can literally mean to carry off someone. And it has connotations of abduction or taking by force. We see something similar in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 23. The people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to the number, from the dancers whom they carried off. And so you have these two Israelite men marrying Moabites. These marriages are also a gray area on theological grounds. In the Old Testament, Israelites were explicitly forbidden from marrying certain surrounding pagan nations. Moabites were not on that list, but they're still from a pagan land. And so for Naomi, she has lost a husband, gained two daughters-in-law, 10 years of marriage. You'd expect the next thing to be a mention of kids, but there's not. And that's another theme that we'll see in the book of Ruth, this theme of childlessness. To this point in the story, we still don't really know how to judge anything that's going on. We've seen a lot of action in this family without any indication for how we should look at it. Verse 5 is our final scene, three widows. And both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This verse is being looked at from Naomi's perspective. She's lost everything. And again, there are more questions than answers. We don't know why they died, if they were being judged. Why didn't they have kids? Was it infertility? Did they choose not to? We don't know why they never returned to the promised land. We just know the result. At any point in history, it is hard to be a widow. But it was especially hard in the ancient world. Women had few options. It's not like Naomi was gonna go back to school and finish her degree. It's not like she had professional prospects. It's not like she had life insurance. Plus, she was living in a land that was not with her own people and who 
had no familial loyalty to her. She had no blood relatives in Moab. When Elimelech had died, at least she had her sons, but now they were gone too. Given the fact that she already has two grown sons, she's likely past childbearing age, which in a culture like this one especially, would have made prospects for remarriage difficult, if not impossible. Quite the predicament. So that's the situation she's in. I planned for the message to be a little bit shorter this week because the only thing I really want to show in this passage is that in these first five verses for Naomi, it shows an existence that is just about as bad as that of Job. Naomi has lost everything. She's at as low a point as one can be. In these first five verses, if we just end there, leave questioning what will happen next. What will she do? How will she respond? Where is God in all of this? What kind of future does she have? What kind of life can she have? How can she go on? More questions than answers. And for some of us today, you might feel like you're in a season of life where there's more questions than answers. You might feel like you're in a, a dark point in your life. Sometimes we might feel like Naomi. Maybe not because our circumstances are exactly what hers were, but because we're in a season where it feels like we've lost everything, where we're in a season where things feel hopeless. But we're in that time for some people, they look to Christ and find hope. Where it seems like nothing but darkness, but for some, we see the light that is in Christ. There is no shortage of difficulties we face, real difficulties, real struggles, real tragedies. There are incredibly difficult losses of loved ones. For some, I'm sure we're struggling with that today. Hardships. There's pain and chronic illness. I know some of us have young people in our lives who are struggling, maybe with health issues, maybe with spiritual issues. I know that some of us can carry huge amounts of shame for things that we've done, huge amounts of regret. And the point is not to minimize that pain, but it's to walk with God through the pain. Our world has distorted the gospel that if you believe in God, Things should always go well for you if you behave yourself. But that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is that the world is fallen, suffering is inevitable. And we can go on it on our own, we can go to Moab, or we can walk through it with a God who has promised not a life of ease, but a life with Him. We can come to the grace and mercy of a Savior who knows about suffering because he too has experienced it. He too has suffered in a fallen world. If you're going through a difficult time right now, we have two options. You can go through it with God or you can go through it without God. You should walk with God in a world that walks away. God gives spiritual blessings. He gives grace that is sufficient. He gives peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus gives himself. Do you believe that? Again, it's okay to grieve, to be in pain, to have sorrows. 
but, she, but we should walk through those times with God, not without him. Bethlehem can seem like there's a drought, but life is better there than in Moab. The greatest promise that the Bible makes is not that everything will be easy if you trust in God. It's that you get God. And when things are going good, are you developing a relationship with God that's strong enough to endure when things are going badly? If you're in a good season right now, that's great. You should be thankful for that. But suffering and trials are inevitabilities of life. And so if you're not in a good season right now, know that we have a shepherd who is there to lead. We have a savior who sticks closer than a brother. We have a Lord who promises to give rest. Is Jesus the bedrock of your life? Is he your greatest joy? Is he your true hope? For some of us, the answer, if we're being honest, might be no. And that's okay to know that. But know that we have a gracious and merciful Savior. We have a Savior who is great enough and big enough that we can walk with him through whatever struggles and trials we face. Jesus invites us to come to him, to believe in him, to worship him, to walk with him, to trust in him, and to live for him. And so, if today is a hard day, don't turn from Christ, but turn to him. And if today is a good day, don't walk by yourself, but walk with Christ, because he will never leave you or forsake you. In the beginning of our time, I talked about a Chicago lawyer and real estate investor named Horatio Spafford, who had lost a son to scarlet fever, lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire. Two years later, the family was set to set was set to sail to England. But at the last minute, Horatio had to stay behind over some business issues with his real estate. And so his wife and four daughters went along without him. While at sea, the boat collided with another ship. Horatio's wife survived, but all four daughters were lost. When he got the terrible news, he set sail for England. And while he sailed, the grieving father wrote perhaps the most famous hymn ever written by an American. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, some of us today are coming to you from really, really difficult and challenging places. And again, let us not mitigate that. The pain and suffering we face is, is very real in a fallen world. But in the face of that, Lord, may we trust in you and walk with you. Lord, may we know that if we have you, whatever it is, Lord, you are faithful. You will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.